his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll speak to the screenwriters of the movie Chappaquiddick and find out how they went about researching an accident that happened nearly 50 years ago. We'll also discuss the upcoming HBO presentation Paterno with the Harrisburg Patriot reporter who provided the blueprint for the project, which stars Al Pacino. And we'll attend a recent gathering of individuals who are working to create more advocacy in suicide prevention. This weekend, the movie Chappaquiddick opened in theaters across the country. The film chronicles an accident in the summer of 1969 in Massachusetts that killed Mary Jo Kopechny, a native of Plymouth in Luzerne County, and one of the Boiler Room Girls who worked on the 1968 presidential campaign of Robert Kennedy. Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy was the driver of the car at Chappaquiddick, and the aftermath of the mishap has been reconstructed by screenwriters Andrew Logan and Taylor Allen, who spoke to us this week about the process of bringing the often disputed story to the big screen. Maybe the fact that you didn't know a lot about Chappaquiddick helped you with this movie. We talked a little bit uh, about uh, the the inquest and I, I think that uh, that kind of testimony under oath you would hope Taylor would be accurate right because when we see people with their hands up we th- hope they're telling the truth absolutely and if they weren't telling the truth then certainly what I can tell you is that not everybody's testimony exactly agreed with each other's that was something that we tried to bake into the movie and so you actually do see the accident uh, three different times, and you see events play in somewhat three different ways. And the reason for that is because we wanted to show the diversity of under oath testimony from Ted, even going from his statement to the police the day of the accident to the statement that he made to the nation a week later to the testimony he gave under oath. Yeah, and uh, most certainly that these are interesting calls that were made in regards to uh, what needed to be done here with the Ted Kennedy, Taylor, because, you know, a lot of people probably thought that this would be the end of him. In in fact, I'm sure there were people in the Kennedy camp that thought the only way out of this for Ted Kennedy as a senator would be for him to offer his resignation. Absolutely. And that was something that we did find was heavily discussed at the time. And I'll say that, um, you know, you're writing a movie, it's not a documentary. And so one of the only pieces of dramatic license in the movie is the idea that his cousin, Joe Gargan, specifically wrote out a resignation speech. And we did that because we wanted to make that choice very clear for the audience. 
and show that it was truly considered. And we think that that's fair. But whether or not the actual speech was ever written is not documented. But the thing that is documented, again, is that uh, Joe Gargan um, hated the speech that Ted ended up reading uh, to the nation the week later, written by Ted Sorensen, and that uh, despite that, he was uh, forced to suffer the indignity of holding the cue card. Ted Sorensen, by the way, if I'm uh, remembering this correctly, was instrumental in writing John F. Kennedy's inauguration speech, right? Absolutely. He was uh, JFK's uh, main speechwriter, I believe. incredible because there's so much irony in this, Taylor, that I find because in that speech, of course, Kennedy talks about um, space exploration, going to the moon, and this terrible, tragic accident happened on the cusp of the moon landing. I mean, you you can't make fiction like this, and it was... It was all real. You're absolutely right. Often as writers, and you know, mind you, Andrew and I are first-time screenwriters, we said to ourselves as we did our research, you know, if this movie doesn't turn out great, it's not the fault of the material, it's the fault of the writers, because everything was really served to us on a silver platter with um, all the great thematic dynamics of the Kennedy family. All right, I'm going to see if uh, we have Andrew back so we could uh, conference you together. Andrew, are you there? <laughs> Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? You both sound terrific now, and I'd like to thank Ma Bell for making all this possible. All right, so, uh-huh. so Andrew, let me ask you about uh, this this particular storyline, because uh, as we were talking about, uh, Mary Jo Kopechny was from our area, and uh, a lot of people here saw her different than some of the portrayals in the, the newspapers, which were absolutely uh, terrible. Uh, I believe it wasn't one of the headlines, Blonde Drowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sadly, so, yes. Yeah, so to, to actually try to uh, sort through all this, I know that um, the, the people that live here, uh, Georgetta Petoskey and her son, William Nelson, were very, very anxious to make sure that everything went uh, and okay on their end. Uh, how much did you learn from them? Uh, We were really lucky that um, right as we were about to set forth with production, uh, they reached out to us and uh, sent us their book. Uh, It's called Our Mary Jo. And it really was something that we had always been striving for, to show Mary Jo as a three-dimensional human being. But, um, you know, their book was a very helpful resource for, you know, the performance and for the construction of the character to make sure that we got it as accurate as possible. And that was always our goal, was you know, to honor her, her memory. Yeah, her name had been dragged through the mud um, you know, for almost 50, 50 years, and we felt it was really important for uh, an audience to see the story and to come away with knowing how smart and uh, how bright of a future that she had in front of her and how tragic her death really was. Um, from the, the perspective of, of trying to uh, make this screenplay uh, a reasonable length, I understand, uh, Andrew, when it was written at first, it uh, crested, what, over 250 pages, and I can see why, because w- what do you leave out in a story that's so intriguing? Well, I should say that the um, that the uh, the original draft was 196 pages, still very, very long, but not, not quite 250 <laughs> Um, but to answer your question, you know, on that first draft, we were really um, wanting to make sure that every detail that we thought was really important was um, in the script. And so 
in order to get it down to a manageable length, we, you know, had to make some tough choices and just go through scene by scene, line by line, and just cut anything that wasn't, you know, on story with what with what we were trying to do. Yeah, uh, Taylor. I'll tell uh, you. Go ahead. Oh, good. Oh well, I'll just tell you an interesting detail that is an example of the sort of thing that we wish we could have included because it's minor, but even though it's minor, it actually spoke volumes. Uh, in the movie, when Ted wakes up uh, Saturday morning after Mary Jo's death, there's a paper sitting at his doorstep, as there often are at hotels, and he picks it up and he sees a lot of moon landing stories. But in reality, doing the research, uh, there wasn't a paper. Uh, he actually went to the front desk, and uh, he got a paper from the desk clerk and then asked for change for the phone. And you do see him end up making that phone call, but um, it was something that just like these small interactions meant a lot to us in terms of as he delayed and as he, you know, chose not to immediately go to the police. Uh, one of the most powerful characters, I understand, in, in your movie is uh, Joseph Kennedy, although he, at the time he was uh, he had suffered a stroke and was uh, not completely verbal and I, I guess his his actions and reactions had to do uh, with a, a lot of I guess physical acting and Andrew how did how did he come off uh, to you when you were trying to portray him in this movie um, we uh, first we read the book called the Patriarch uh, which is a wonderful wonderful book about Joseph Kennedy and the Kennedy Kennedy dynasty and then in terms of how to specifically portray him, we uh, had a lot of arguments, actually, about how to do that because, you know, as you said, he had a stroke and he, his um, speech was impaired, and we weren't exactly sure how he sounded or how he communicated. And then I ended up coming across a recording um, that I found through the LBJ Presidential Library of President Johnson and Ted Kennedy making a phone call to Joseph Kennedy from the Oval Office. And in that call, you know, he's able to grunt a couple words here and there um, with the very heavy breathing on the other end of the phone. And so once we had that, we were like, well, this is this is how we have to write it because this is how he sounded. Taylor, in terms of uh, some of the other backdrops for this, I mean, uh, we, we know that this family was so plagued by tragedy. So I guess for a lot of Americans, there was a sensitivity to them looking at the, the suffering that they had incurred. In fact, you, you probably found out through your research that people around here and probably people from across the country had a picture of JFK next to Jesus in their house. So there was always this reverence to them. And I'm sure that to some, it was very, very difficult to see this accident in in any light that was not favorable to the Kennedys. So how did you how did you view that? Um, to your point, our research did show that uh, you know JFK photos were as popular as Jesus photos in homes in the late 1960s, and uh, specifically uh, in the original 196 page draft, um, the the prosecutor, the DA Edmund Denise, uh, he lived with his mother at the time. And the way that we introduced him in the script was with his mother answering the phone, sitting next to a portrait of Jesus and JFK on the wall. So that did play into the uh, movie. And uh, the, I saw a statement from someone in, in the Kennedy family 
that uh, tried to almost be a little bit dismissive of of this movie. Andrew, did you? Uh, it was in some article about you know, it, it's always been difficult to separate uh, these two things, and uh, we believe that uh, y- you guys used a lot of things that uh, weren't quite accurate. So, a- am I getting the statement right at all? And I'm sure you've seen it. Um, yeah, I think uh, someone said something to that effect. But you know, as as I said before, we use the, the inquest testimony as our primary uh, source for the script and use the words and the um, and the testimony of the people who were there to guide on the facts for the movie. Yeah, I had to add to that because, um, you know, one of the other things that um, that individual said in that interview was that we had not spoken to anybody on the island that night, and thus we... we didn't have any information from people that were there. And uh, that's not actually accurate. We actually talked to John Farrar, who is the diver who is the person that exhumed Mary Jo's body out of the car and was the only person to see her undisturbed you know, position in the car. And uh, it was his you know, point of view, it was his experience that uh, Mary Jo was in a position where she was trying to get one last breath of air. And, um, yeah, that was something that was really heartbreaking to hear and something that we felt like needed to be in the movie. And so we did actually reach out to, you know, many other people. And actually the person specifically who said that we didn't talk to anybody, we asked if she could help us with uh, the accuracy of the script, and she turned us down flatly. So you do your best. Yeah, and uh, I I wonder if that would be alluding to the... Uh, elusive boiler room girls who have been uh, shrouded pretty much in a, a veil of secrecy all these years. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, we we definitely wanted their point of view because I think that they were closest with Mary Jo, and thus, given our stated goal of trying to honor Mary Jo's legacy, it would have been um, well appreciated to get them on the record uh, from their perspective today. But we did have all of their testimony from the inquest, and some of them speak quite extensively. So we did feel comfortable moving forward. Yeah, and uh, Andrew, the, the the boiler room girls themselves—they were the precursors to uh, modern day political consultants. They were mm-hmm. obviously very hardworking on behalf of, of of these candidates, and it's it's many people believe that uh, they do actually hold a lot of the keys. Is is there anything you found anywhere that would indicate as to why they are so uh, covert in all of this? Uh, some people speculate that perhaps they may have uh, been, you know, paid to keep quiet or whatnot. Do you have any kind of indication what why they don't talk? No, I, I don't have any um, indication, and certainly nothing in my research has... Um given me, shed any light on, on that fact, I think that you would have to ask them. Is there, in, in the research, and neither one of you can answer this, is there anything that would indicate that uh, perhaps uh, the vehicle, the Oldsmobile that uh, Ted Kennedy was, was driving when it went off the bridge at Chappaquiddick had been involved in any uh, previous accident that evening? No, nothing that we've found. Um, there is an indication that Ted's testimony about when the accident occurred is not accurate because um, a sheriff's deputy officer, Huck Look, saw that the car and actually could uh, list 
you know, the first letter and some of the numbers of the license plate uh, an hour after Ted Kennedy said the accident had already taken place. Wow. Um, and so there's a very interesting story from that man, and uh, we've actually spoken to his family since, and they were very happy with uh, the portrayal in, in the movie. Okay, and uh, I know I have to let you both go because you stayed way longer than you were supposed to. But uh, we find <laughs> happy this, to. We we find this this whole situation to be fascinating. I'm glad that uh, the two of you chose this uh, to do. And uh, I'd like to ask either one of you in the future: Do you do you hope to deal more? with parts of American history that are controversial, or do you uh, think that you'll be dealing in fiction, or, or maybe both, and uh, either one of you can answer? Uh, definitely, I think that we'll end up doing a lot of both, but in the short run, we are really focused on uh, some other pieces of history that have gone undertold or unnoticed, and um, we're really excited to uh, turn our lens to uh, the sports world, and we're going to be telling a great story about the Augusta National and uh, the racist founder of uh, that most famous golf club and his relationship with the first employee, who is a black man, and uh, why this ultra-racist man ended up giving a significant portion of his estate to uh, a black man and what that must have felt like for that man, Bowman Milligan. Screenwriters Andrew Logan and Taylor Allen joined us this week to talk about their work on the film Chappaquiddick, which opened this weekend in theaters. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The rise and crashing fall of a legendary Penn State University football coach is revisited in the HBO presentation Paterno which began airing this weekend. The film focuses on a tumultuous period between November of 2011 and January of 2012 with the death of Joe Paterno. This week, we spoke to John Lucy of the Harrisburg Patriot newspaper, whose book, Hear No Evil, was used as the basis for the HBO production. Well, you know, uh, decades of working in the print uh, newspaper business, you get fast. And I also have uh, penned a couple of uh, fiction mysteries, too, so that really prepped me for uh, when it came time when the editors asked me to turn all of our reporting that we had done on the Jerry Sandusky scandal into an e-book that would literally be available before Christmas of that year. This was back in 2011, and remember, it was November when all of this was exploding, but we turned turned that around and turned it into sort of an ebook of sort of the you know the, the part of the scandal that, that required the the newspaper research into the grand jury investigation and then of all those momentous events that that unleashed uh, when that indictment was announced you know in early November of 2011 that led to Joe Paterno's unceremonious ouster as head coach after all those legendary years and in this case, uh, many of the elements of the story prove sometimes the truth is indeed stranger than fiction. At your newspaper, the, Har the Harrisburg Patriot News, you had reporters who covered sports, you had reporters who covered government affairs, and uh, then you had a 24-year-old reporter, a, a young journalist, Sarah 
Ganim, who was the the catalyst for all this uh, coming to the surface. And as as you write about in a piece that appeared recently in the Harrisburg Patriot, Sarah had been working this story earlier in 2011, and dribs and drabs of it were coming out, but it, it didn't seem to uh, reach critical mass until November. Can you kind of lay down the, the background of how your newspaper got involved in this coverage and broke the story wide open? Okay, absolutely. Yeah, Sarah Ganim, who was a Penn State student, and then she went to work for uh, the uh, Center Daily Times right in State College, and she, like a lot of people, had heard all these rumors surrounding Jerry Sandusky because there had been rumors surrounding him for years of just, you know, his dealings with kids, uh, boys from the Second Mile, which was his group that tried to help sort of troubled uh, kids. So she had heard the rumors, and she started looking into them when she was working for the Center Daily Times. So she had been looking into things for about a year when she decided to interview with the Patriot News. It turns out we had heard those same rumors, and we were looking into things, too. She had a line on one of the victims, which turned out to be the boy in Lock Haven, who was the catalyst for the grand jury investigation. Other reporters at the Patriot News had a line on another victim, and during this interview process, both sides were also feeling each other out on what they knew about the Sandusky scandal. Long story short, she gets hired in early of 2011. She's given unlimited time to sort of work on this story by uh, editor David Newhouse. And by March, she had uncovered enough that we started publishing stories that there was this grand jury investigation, that people like Paterno were, were testifying, that it was focusing on Jerry Sandusky and his uh, alleged abuse of children. And uh, there was information from at least one or two of the victims that we had uh, identified through, you know, just basically gumshoe reporting. But we published the stories in March, but they're virtually ignored. Paterno goes on to win his 409th victory sets the college record, but weeks later, that indictment from the grand jury is is inadvertently released online, the online uh, court record system. Sarah sees it, we, we publish the story, and uh, Sandusky is hauled in the next day uh, to be booked, and by Monday of that week, Penn State and Happy Valley is quaking to the core because of all the implications of this scandal not the least of which is what people like Paterno, uh, Graham Spanier, the president, uh, Curley and Schultz, the uh, the athletic director and the security director knew, and when did they know it about Sandusky's abuse, some of which was taking place inside the football building, the latch building, and even in the, the football showers of, of all places. Because Sandusky, even though he retired as a coach in 1999, he was granted access to all these Penn State facilities for life. And he was bringing boys from the second mile, thinking outwardly that he's introducing them to, you know, the disciplines of college and, you know, what they could aspire to, you know, uh, in their future. But here it's really a ruse so he can abuse these kids. So that is the unbelievable story that, that was uncovered. 
Yeah. And it and it and it and it basically rocked Penn State like never before. It's so amazing, John, that when this did come out or earlier in 2011, it was met with kind of a muted response, and then of course uh, everything uh, blew up, and it was uh, really big news all over the the world. Absolutely. Were you there on that uh, Friday when uh, when uh, Sarah typed Sandusky's name into? I, I'm guessing it's what the the Pacer system or whatever. Were, mm-hmm. you, were you there when that happened? Because that must have been some moment when she knew that this was going to come down. Yeah, it was almost surreal because she sees it with her eyes. She shouts in the newsroom, "It's it's he, he's been indicted." And then where everybody crowds around, and then, and then for then it disappears. And they actually have that scene in the movie. In the movie, you know, they they kind of distill the Patriot News down to Sarah and David Newhouse, the executive editor. Mm-hmm. So it really there was a you know a sort of a newsroom full of editors and reporters that were sort of doing other aspects of of the story, especially when the scandal broke and it and the tentacles reached out into this conspiracy of silence among the top brass at Penn State. But, uh, but yeah, that scene is in there. It was almost surreal, and you're almost like, did I really see what I just saw? And, of course, it was true. And then because of that breach, they rushed rushed Shandusky in to be processed. He actually made bail and was out, you know, within hours. And uh, but, but it touched off the salacious details of that grand jury indictment, the words, the language, the cold matter-of-fact way they described the sexual abuse of these boys was so chilling that there was no escaping it, you know, from anybody at Penn State. And uh, j- just seeing that and having your jaw drop with, with seeing it in black and white really just, uh, uh, there was no looking away at that point. Yeah, and they uh, attempted to hustle him into that uh, arraignment and hustle him back out without you guys knowing about it. And uh, again, it shows, John, the culture of protectiveness to some of these individuals. And um, as as reporters and, and editors and, and photogs, you, you must have been astonished at still, with these words in black and white, which you guys had seen, there would still be an attempt by... Um, even law enforcement to get him in and out of there without any ado, you know? Yeah, not only get him in and out of there, but in the indictment, uh, at least Curley and Schultz were also mentioned, uh, you know, as as sort of knowing about this. So, uh, and then the the first instinct of Graham Spanier in Penn State was to put a full-throated statement out supporting them and defending them. So yeah, they're, they're, they they still were in denial. With, you know, and in terms, you know, the, the crisis communications and the PR disaster that this became for Penn State, which is now a case study that some communication classes at Penn State still study to this day. The fact that they weren't better prepared for this because everybody knew the grand jury was was meeting because some of those guys were were testified before it. We had the story in March, but yet this still managed to catch everybody by surprise in Happy Valley, just showing the fact that they had no strategy for how to deal with this, Uh, you know, the PR disaster and the media, the international media that would be swarming the campus by Tuesday of that week. It, it is absolutely a, a remarkable moment, and even you know the uh, the way that Joe Paterno had just uh, notched up 
this historic win in his career in, in D1 history, and then his his fall from grace. Um, and as you know, John, because you're you live in in Pennsylvania for so long. I mean, just the name Joe Paterno gave such reverence, you know what I'm saying, because of mm-hmm. his, his commitment to the university, his uh, fostering of uh, young men into uh, what what they call student-athletes, which I guess doesn't happen everywhere, his uh, sense of philanthropy to Penn State University itself. It was as though he could do no wrong, so I think there was a reticence, actually, to to do something about this, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, he rebuffed Graham Spanier, uh, I think it was back in 2004, 2005, because, you know, the program had fallen on some hard times and uh, the record wasn't what it should have been. Spanier comes over to Paterno's house and saying, hey, we think you might want to retire. He says, no, uh, get out. And, you know, he, he keeps his position and, and then ends up going to the Rose Bowl. And I think uh, 2005 has one of the better seasons. You know, uh, so he he had the power um, at Penn State, and you know because he had that PR image of being doing everything by the book and education matters and let's graduate these kids. Uh, he used that power with an edge. So in other words, uh, he, he if there was any challenge to him. Uh, he used that power to sort of beat it back, and he used that power to to really try to control the media coverage of him. He quartered the you know the beat reporters that that covered him, and when the questions might get a little too uncomfortable, there was an edge to him that many reporters would see of him sort of snapping back and and nipping those sort of uh, too aggressive coverage in the bud. But all that came crashing down when this indictment. Uh, came down, and especially when Penn State was on its heels PR-wise, and they needed to make some bold moves that would show them uh, appreciating the full gravity of the scandal, but also trying to turn the page and move on. And the biggest thing that they could do was to fire Paterno, and they did it over the phone, literally. You know, call, uh, he gave, they sent a courier with an envelope that called this number. He called it. He said it was a you know thirty second conversation. You're fired, and that was it. Dang. And of course, that's in the movie as well. Absolutely incredible. And then of course, they had uh, this uh, press. Uh, I, I don't even know what to call this. Um, scrum is the best way I, I guess I could describe it because they were going to have a press conference um, with the uh, the board vice chairman, uh, John Surma, uh, mm-hmm. speaking to the media. They had the media shut out of the room where the event was going to happen. That never makes the media happy. And then they had a run in there and uh, Surma speaks and the you know members of the board are uh, seen in a, a photograph from from your own newspaper, uh, like a rogues gallery behind them. It's just incredible. Yeah, they look. They all have those stern faces, like the old Soviet Politburo. You know, they're all just have the poker faces going on, and you can tell it's uncomfortable for everybody. And Serma begins by announcing Spaniards' ouster, and almost gives the paternal ouster as an afterthought. But that's what triggered, and plus because that that meeting had gone on so late, by the time they announced the Paterno firing, you know, it's, it's you know, going on, you know, 11 o'clock, 
And needless to say, a lot of the college students had spent a few hours in the bars. They see this on TV and immediately pour out into the streets and begin this sort of riot uh, over Paterno's firing. That goes national on CNN and cable channels. And the anchors are saying, well, why are these kids rioting over a football coach getting fired? When the real scandal, the real tragedy, is all these kids that were abused, you know, under the nose of, of, of this venerable institution. Why aren't why don't they care about that? And it gave the whole football culture of Penn State this this grotesque image of that football counts but kids don't, and it became this national media damnation of Penn State. So it went from being sort of the program that did everything right to the program that blindly worship football above all. And then, of course, uh, the the real-life scene, John, of uh, Joe Paterno in his uh, pajama bottoms and his <laughs> his wife in, in, in her house coat hosting a, a media press conference outside their house, and then it turns into We Are Penn State, which, again, you cannot... You cannot write this kind of content, This and this all really happened. It all really happened. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, obviously in, re- in real life, it, 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 there was this mist of melancholy there because, you know, at 84 and, and everything that he had done, even though there were, was a hard edge to Paterno and, and, and he could wield power with the best of them, there was this grandfatherly quality that he had especially with the uh, with the students and paternoville remember they camp out ahead of every game paternoville so there was this wisp of melancholy and emotion to see this guy sort of fired and uh, uh unceremoniously and and you know and the penn state revs up but he does turn around before he goes in and say hey let's maybe pray a little for those victims and then he turns around, and then they do the Pensate again, and he pumps his arm one last time and then disappears behind the door. And for our ph- photographer, Joe Hermit, who's photographed Paterno thousands of times, that was the last photo he ever took of Paterno because he'd be diagnosed with uh, aggressive cancer just weeks uh, later and be dead by January uh, of uh, 2012. So, I mean, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was literally Shakespearean. Uh, moment, lion in winter, for sure. Absolutely, and uh, I, I guess you've uh, seen uh, the movie that HBO is uh, debuting. Yes, on. yeah, we <laughs> they, they made it available to Penn Live, and uh, a group of us screened it uh, a week ago. And uh, uh, Pacino as Paterno is unbelievable. There are times, you know, even even among people who covered Paterno for decades, where it, it seems like you're watching Paterno on screen, and and he actually gives. Um, sort of, somewhat of a doddering, you know, 84-year-old performance, you know, you you, you can kind of tell he's past his prime and maybe even a little confused. Uh, And and some of the the drama of the film uh, is Paterno trying to remember exactly what he did know about Jerry because he had the, the, the personality that could tune things out and if he was focused on football, he could tune other things out and not want to know the details. You know what I mean? So it's really, it, it, I think it's really well done, the, 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 the part that studies Paterno and the inner workings of the Paterno family as this was exploding. To me, that's where the real drama of the dramatization of this lies. Oh, man, uh, 
Elvis Presley's granddaughter plays young Sarah, huh? Yes. <laughs> some casting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's funny because Sarah had other opportunities to write books and do other things with her experiences with this. But when uh, HB, I think it was Barry Levinson that had the project first, and then eventually it wound up in HBO. And it, you know, how movie projects, there's a gestation period. But she was contacted, and she felt comfortable with uh, uh, Barry Levinson of, of Diner fame and, and, of course, HBO. And she served as a paid consultant on this. And they wanted to fill out the journalism side of the story through uh through uh, Sarah and her character. So she's really the second build character in, in the story. In other words, uh, uh, the actress that portrays her, the, the, uh, Riley uh, something, and her name Keo. escapes me, Riley is Keo. the second build yeah. actor. Yeah, she's the second build actor in the thing. But Sarah will tell you, I interviewed her uh, uh, earlier this week, that she doesn't really see the movie as as finished as sort of like a journalism story like Spotlight that won the Academy Award or The Post that was out earlier this year because a lot of the reporting that she did in tracking down those original uh, victims and getting the grand jury sor- sources of what was going on in the grand jury, you know, that happens before the time period of the movie, which really begins with Paterno getting his 409th win and then the indictment getting prematurely released right after, bringing everything down. So uh, she, she's a main character in the movie, and it does show her going back to the victims after the indictment is 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 out, and the, the fact that there may have been a cover up is revealed, and and she, you know they show her with the victims. What she said was her most important uh, part of this story was the victims themselves, because without them and without the bravery of you know of of saying that I was abused in this horrible, embarrassing way by this football great Sandusky, you don't have a story. So for Sarah, the, the fact that the victims could be an integral part of this side of the story, that, that was important to her. John Lucy, thanks for taking all this time this morning uh, with us. Uh, what, a, what a fascinating part of our, our history. And um, uh, your book, Hear No Evil, is the basis for it, which was uh, put out in December of 2011 uh, with great speed and uh, very deaf, deftly, and I appreciate the fact that you took the time today. Thanks for having me, and I uh, hope everybody watches and sort of makes up their own yeah, mind right. on, on, on the, whole, the whole scandal. That's John Lucy of the Harrisburg Patriot newspaper. His book, Hear No Evil, served as a resource for the new HBO film, Paterno. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's mission is to lead advocacy and education efforts in communities to reduce stigma and offer support. The group had a session recently in Wilkes-Barre to talk about their work and how the community can get involved. We spoke to Samantha Benz, Area Director for Central and Eastern Pennsylvania for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Your involvement actually has a little bit of a personal connection. Absolutely. Um, When I was in high school, my mother made a suicide attempt. Um, And at the time, it was still extremely stigmatized and there was a lot of embarrassment and shame surrounding it. It was not something that I openly talked about. And so 
you know, getting involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention really helped me to learn how to talk about it and be more comfortable with it. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's mission is to save lives and bring hope to those affected by suicide. So we really are trying to reach out to survivors of loss and just sort of form a community, but then on the other end, really do research and, and try to find some preventative measures that we can take to really reduce the suicide rate. It was founded in 1987 um, in New York City. It was just research organization at first, and it has really branched off. Now we're kind of a grassroots movement, so we have chapters in all 50 states. We're nationwide. We've shown a lot of growth over the past few years between our community outreach, between our fundraising events. So just really exciting that more and more people are speaking out about suicide and its prevention, and that's helping our organization to grow. Do you know when things started to take a turn toward the more public with people speaking out. Was there any kind of event or um, circumstance that you believe made people feel that, you know, now is the time for me to talk about this? Well, we would hope that it's from more and more grassroots efforts like our own. Um, I think that there are several nonprofits and just community groups that are saying it's okay to speak out about it. I also think, um, too, you know, people in the media, celebrities, if they're speaking out and saying that they are suffering with a mental illness or if they have suffered a loss, I think that that really helps people to see that they, too, can speak out, that it's a problem that affects everyone. That willingness to, to speak out about things, how do you encourage people that, if you do something like this, it, it will be okay. Um, that's part of our the mission of our Out of the Darkness Walk that we have is to really form that community and it's a safe space. So the stigma surrounding mental health and suicide still exists, unfortunately, in our society, but at that walk, it's a safe space. And so you can really connect with other people to see that you're not alone and then kind of bring that to your day-to-day -day life and start to speak out about it more and more regularly. Do you have any kind of um, strategies that you recommend for people who may have somebody either in their family or maybe at the school where they teach that seems like they're having a struggle or a hard time. How would how do you recommend they handle that? We ask that, first of all, people just ask, are you okay? A lot of times we know that something's off. We kind of have that gut feeling, but we don't say anything about it. And a lot of times if you do, just ask that person, are you okay? And try to start a conversation. They will open up to you. We also encourage people to use the resources that are available. So the hotlines, the text lines. I know that right now we're working on trying to get a three-digit phone number, like a 911. So, you know, definitely reach out um, to the resources that are available. Are you noticing that young people are talking more to you and feeling that they might be vulnerable? You know, we've seen a lot of events in the country where we, it looks like we have some young people who are troubled. Are you getting some feedback from young people who are willing to talk about what they're going through? I think so, yes. We have a campus walk, um, an Out of the Darkness walk, and that's really led by our youth. So uh, high schools and, and college campuses where they can talk about it um, and then we have a program where we go into schools and encourage students to talk about it so I think that this younger generation is definitely smarter about mental health. I think in the past wasn't there kind of this myth out there that if you talked about suicide you could actually cause suicide? Yes, absolutely, and that is most definitely a myth um, that has been actually proven, that um, you're not planting that seed. That seed is already in their mind, and asking them about it is going to potentially save their lives as opposed to ending in a, a horrible result. Are, are you able to talk to people who were suicidal and can advise you on what helped them 
to get that thought out of their mind. Yes, um, part of the educational materials that we make, our programs, um, any research that we're doing, we consult people with lived experience. Um, that's a huge part of our work, so making sure that we consult those people to see how that suicidal ideation um, was handled. We also talked to Dawn Evans of Wilkes-Barre, chair to the board of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She explains why she got involved. On April 11th of 2014, my son died by suicide. He was 16. And so we automatically just started doing things. And the first thing we actually did was about two weeks after he died, Wilkes University had a walk. And that's how we kind of got involved with this organization. David was a quiet kid, played football at Holy Redeemer, liked to play guitar, liked to write, just kind of, uh, he was an all-around good kid. And I've worked in psychiatry my whole life as an occupational therapist. So I've been exposed to people that died by suicide. I never thought ever that anybody in my family would ever die by suicide. So it was kind of like a eye-opening experience to me that it happens to everybody. When this did happen to you, there was no inkling that you saw? No, we had no indicators really until unfortunately like after he died and we started sitting down and thinking about it. And then we were, we had a lot of aha moments where we thought, oh, wow, you know, he, this was him trying to tell us something and we weren't picking it up. What can you advise people to do then when they have kids? And kids, you know, they're moody, they're, they, they change all the time. You don't even know them at points. I know that with my own kids, sometimes I didn't even know who they were. What do you advise people to look for? Um, I actually just spoke about this with my um, occupational therapy students. I teach at Misericordia University. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about the way you get people to even consider that somebody might be in trouble is to actually just talk to listen, to watch, to see if there's any kind of changes that occur, and to actually ask the question, are you okay? And I think that kind of question is such an icebreaker for almost all of us. So can you talk about people that you know that maybe did that and they got back to you and they said, wow, that was really something I needed to do? Actually, there have been several. It's really interesting. Once you make the choice to talk and to tell people, um, you kind of become people's go-to person, yeah. And so there have been instances where myself and my husband and my daughter, we've been asked to speak with people that are having problems, their their kids or their husband or their wife, a friend, and it, it actually does work out because the more you talk to somebody and then you start talking about the different resources and how they can get help, um, it, it, it helps a lot. People feel like they're listened to and they're important enough to stop. Do you feel that the, the schools around here are embracing this kind of message to have these talks and the are you okay moments? Oh, I absolutely think so. I know that at Misericordia University, we now have a suicide prevention committee. We run programming on campus. I know a lot of the area universities and colleges, they all have counseling centers for kids to go and talk for free to a counselor. I think in grade schools and middle and high school, we're just starting to get our foot in the door, say the last like three to five years, where more and more people are asking us if we'd like to come in and talk to either the faculty and staff or the kids themselves. And of course, this isn't just kids who commit suicide. Oh. These are people of all ages, right? Absolutely. Um, highest rate of suicide would be the elderly men. Um, and then next would be probably kids 15 to 24 years old. And just on a, a parting word, if, if, you, if your voice could be heard right now by somebody who feels somewhat you know, inclined toward harming his or herself, what would you say? 
I would say that you have to find that one person that you trust that you can talk to um, because it's so important to talk it out loud and to understand that there is help out there for you and you are important. We, um, I've actually taught it a lot at Misericordia teachers that are going out on um, student teaching so that they, because of Act 71, teachers in Pennsylvania now have to have, every five years they have to have four hours of training in it. I've done it with occupational therapists when, after my son died about a year and a half later, I went to Holy Redeemer and did it for all of their faculty and staff. That was actually extremely rewarding only because they were so wonderful when my son died and they were so supportive. But after I started to get um, go to a lot of programs for AFSP, I started to understand, okay, there are maybe some things that you might not want to do. And so I was able to kind of talk with them about that and problem solve, like how do they get around that so that they can still so show support to the kids and the community and the parents without doing something that might um, sensationalize it. More information about the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention can be found on their website. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.